Welcome everybody to our School of Theology on this Friday evening. We greet you all in the name of Christ, our Sovereign Redeemer. Tonight, the subject is the sovereignty of God. I'm so keen that this evening not be an academic enterprise where we have head knowledge of a particular subject, important though that is. But what would be wonderful would be if the Lord would so own the content of this evening that a feeling of awe swept over this place. That is what we long for. I'm not here to prove anything. I have no doctrine to prove. I'm not wanting to get over any propaganda for a particular way of thinking. Uh, and uh, I have said it before, I'll say it again. There'll be those who differ with some of the things I say tonight and, and every week there'll be something you don't agree with. And uh, don't be, feel bad about that. If you want to be wrong, it's okay. Uh, <laughs> but I think it, it's fantastic when you disagree and you keep coming. And uh, I appreciate that. Uh, tonight will be, for some, the most important study we've had. It may be old hat to some of you. For some, a breakthrough that you wouldn't take anything in the world for. Some tough things tonight. It will be, for some of you, a very hard pill to swallow. You may not swallow it at all. You may find it more than you can take. I would urge you, listen to me, come next week as well as tonight. The two go together. We could have cut it in half and got both in tonight. But uh, I just would urge you to know there's another side of the coin next week. But it doesn't contradict tonight. It's just the other side of the coin. We're dealing with the sovereignty of God. And this is something that must reach your heart before you will really believe it. You know the old saying, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. And so we're not interested in this becoming a doctrinaire evening whereby you perceive certain points. It has got to be something that grips you. What I'm going to be teaching tonight is something that I myself had not seen, and uh, it could be that what I will be saying to you tonight, had someone said it to me years ago, I would have been so angry. I would have been tempted to get up and leave right in the middle, as some of you might do, don't know that you will, but, because I just couldn't have coped with this. Then something happened to me. And I could see there was another way of looking at it. And I had to lower my voice. And I wouldn't be the minister of this church tonight if it weren't for the unveiling of this subject a number of years ago. Here's what we mean by the sovereignty of God. Here's the definition. It is God's right and power to do whatever he pleases with anyone at any time. Psalm 115, verse 3, Our Lord is in the heavens. 
he has done whatever pleased him. Your reaction could at this moment be, ah, I don't think I'm going to like this. But bear with us and consider what I'm saying. I want you to have a tough mind and think for yourself. But bear with us. Now, let me explain what I mean about God's right. Just as an illustration, back in the medieval days, they used to talk about the divine right of kings. Wasn't biblical. The kings are the only ones who really liked that theory. But it was an assumption in many. And it meant that the king could do anything, including breaking the rules that would apply to anyone else. Henry VIII is a perfect example of that. The right, however, was not biblical. And the idea of divine right of kings, there's no biblical basis for it at all. It was quite wrong. But they believed it then. It was eventually discredited. But what does survive is the idea those born to privilege are a law to themselves. And there are some who seem to think it. Here's another way of putting it. In recent years, human rights has been an issue of considerable discussion. It's an issue that extends to international politics. Diplomats would appeal to human rights as a reasonable point of view when dealing with the Soviets, as we used to call them. And thank God that's over. But there are still dictators, and one appeals to them on bended knee. What about human rights? But then that is not only political, it is extended to individuals at the level of racial tension, poverty, housing, education, health. Along with this is what is called animal rights. This extends from the protection of whales and protection of birds and even dogs that are used for ex experimental purposes. You find that those who defend these rights can get very exercised and sometimes hostile to the rights of the unborn. I don't mean to be unfair, but I'm always amazed how people will defend uh, a whale, uh, but uh, also defend abortion. When you consider divine right of kings, human rights, animal rights, what is almost totally neglected today? God's rights. God's rights. And I'm going to ask you, when is the last time you thought about that? That God has a right to be God. And the question tonight is whether we will let God be God. That is the issue at bottom in all that we'll be saying. All right, why deal with this study? Why is this study important? Well, uh, let me say this before I get to the points that I've made. I try in choosing the subjects for our school of theology to have a balance between what I think is needed today and also what I think people will enjoy. And I have to make that choice and I pray hard about it. If I told you how hard I pray for these subjects and the choice of the subject, I just have made the choice for the ten 
uh, evenings from January to the end of March. If you knew how hard I pray about that, you, you may not believe me. I want to get it right. But in my mind, I think I want to give what I think is needed. But I also want to give something that I think people will be interested in where I can still teach that and be true to myself. Well, now, this is the subject tonight that I think is needed. Uh, I had my secretary phone somebody today uh, and say, you tell my friend so-and-so that he ought to be here tonight. He's a friend who, who feels led to pray for me. Uh, he's always saying to me, R.T., God's on your case. And he's always praying for me. And he doesn't come here to church. Uh, he goes to another church, and, and that's fine. I haven't tried at all to get him to come to our church. But I said, I tell him I want him to be here tonight. Because this is a part of the contribution that I want to make in the theological scene today in British Christianity. This is a neglected subject. A dose of the sovereignty of God is what is needed in some ways more than anything at the present time. All right. Why is the study important? Number one, it lets us view theology from God's perspective. In case you didn't know it, there are two ways of doing theology. One is from man's point of view. And if you were to go to a typical theological seminary today, that is the only way they even think about it, is doing theology from man's point of view. To find a seminary or Bible college or university where they have a department of theology where they are devoted to doing theology from God's point of view is exceedingly rare, almost unheard of. We always think of it from man's point of view. But God's point of view is the biblical approach. Maybe you never thought about it. You see, I define the Bible as God putting his integrity on the line. But you ought to know another thing about the Bible. It's God's in-house publication. Now, Westminster Chapel has an in-house publication, Westminster Record. Uh, and various denominations will have their own journal or their own magazine. Well, God has his in-house publication. It's the Bible. And you see, not only is it his word, but it is expressed in a God-centered context. It therefore calls for theology from God's point of view. Second reason we're doing this. Most theology today that is taught, not always, not everywhere, but mostly, is not even theology. It's not even theology. It's anthropology. It's the study of man. Uh, and the sovereignty of God is... is <laughs> almost unheard of, but I would re regard the sovereignty of God as the purest theology. Uh, the word theology comes from two words. Theos, logos, word theos means God, logos, word. So the word theology really literally means word of God. Thus to do pure theology is truly to handle God's own word. Ever so often people say, well, why do you keep calling it theology 
why don't you just say school of the Bible instead of school of theology? Well, there's a reason for that. The reason mainly is we're dealing with church history a lot. And theology is conceived through church history, even though it's the Word of God. Because issues emerge in the history of the church that you've got to deal with. So that, whereas a hundred years ago, the phrase baptism of the Holy Spirit could be discussed, and no one would even think of this uh, subject as it is thought of today. And it's because of what has happened in our generation. Now when you deal with the baptism of the Spirit, you have to deal with it in the light of what has happened in recent years. And so this is why we're dealing with theology. You have to touch base with subjects that have been raised by Christian leaders. And it becomes a part of, of everybody's thinking. All right. It means, therefore, a divine perspective not man's perspective, when you're doing the purest theology. And I say that the glimpse of the sovereignty of God will give us a taste of theology in its purest form. I would be happy for this to be the first and last subject I ever taught on these Friday nights. And if I thought I'd never uh, see the light of day again and be glad for this to be... Uh, the last thing I ever talked, because this is needed. Reason number three, we're dealing with this subject. Today's generation has lost real respect for God, and it's true in the church. No fear of God in the land or among God's people. And uh, you see, when people hear about the sovereignty of God, as you're going to hear tonight, I've actually had people say to me, did I hear you correctly? Is that what you're really teaching? Yep. Well, I don't like that God. In fact, I hate that God. I've had some say, that God is my devil. A God like that, some say, is terrible. And I say, quite right. That's exactly the word that is used in the Bible. He's a terrible God. He's a terrible God. And you say, well, I don't like this God. Ah, that's because our nature, the way we're born as fallen creatures, we think along certain lines. And so we just imagine that God is going to be somebody we like. You see, this is the generation where God is referred to as the man upstairs. Can you imagine John the Baptist, when he's telling people to flee from the wrath to come? He could talk about the man upstairs. And bringing God down to a level where he's nothing more, as Feuerbach put it, Man's projection on the backdrop of the universe, where we come up with a God that we like, he's nothing more than what we've created, and we just imagine that he's there. But the true God is terrible. And some of you may say, oh, I'm wondering if I've ever got to know God at all. And so, it was this kind of preaching 
that men like Jonathan Edwards gave to their generation. And, and we've lost sight of it today entirely. The irony is, the more theology is presented from man's perspective, the less people fear God and the less they care about him. And so we're living in a day when the church has just brought God lower and lower and lower and people are less and less interested. But if there is a restoration of the awe of God, people will come back to church. A robust view of the sovereignty of God which puts him on the throne will be what brings people to their senses. How many of you have ever heard of Jonathan Edwards' sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? Can I see your hands? Okay, hands down. How many of you have never heard of Jonathan Edwards' sermon Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God? All right, it looks to me like 80% of you have never heard of this. All right, how many of you have heard of the Great Awakening of the 18th century? Can I see your hands? Okay, that seems to be most of you. Edwards, we're told, prayed through the night and on his knees began to write out words that he felt God gave him. He took his text from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, which says in the authorized version, their feet will slide in due time. Edwards preached a sermon. Witnesses tell us that he read every word with a candle as the light. And uh, he would have to stop in the middle of his sermon and urge people to be quiet because such conviction fell that they began to sob out loud and they began to groan and Edwards would stop again and urge them to be quiet but his own sermon so stirred them and he preached that it was by the very mercy of God that they were not in hell at this moment. And it was by the very mercy of God that you woke up alive today and are not in hell at this moment. And you are at this moment hanging over the flames of hell by a thread. And the death angel is about to sever that thread. When he finished the sermon, historians tell us that people literally held on to their pews to keep from falling into hell. Men outside were seen holding on to tree trunks. They thought they were going to slide into hell. It was July 1741 in Enfield, Connecticut. It was the height of the Great Awakening and that sermon it was said, resulted in 500 people converted in just hours. And during that time of the century, 50,000 people were converted in New England. And that sermon 
was the heart of it. You see, the proof that it was God owning the sermon is that Edwards preached it two weeks later and not anything, anything like that happened at all. And so for those who say it was just uh, uneducated people or it was the time of the, uh, of the century where people, you know, could be manipulated or something like that, he preached it two weeks later and nothing happened. And that shows what God did once. Here's a quotation from Jonathan Edwards. It's from a book called The Supremacy of God in Preaching by John Piper. It's endorsed by uh, J.I. Packer, one or two others, and someone uh, loaned it to me. Uh, here's a quote from Edwards. There has been a wonderful alteration in my mind in respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty. From that day to this, God's absolute sovereignty is what my mind seems to rest assured of as much as of anything that I see with my eyes. The doctrine has very often appeared exceeding pleasant, bright, and sweet. Absolute sovereignty is what I love to ascribe to God. God's sovereignty has ever appeared to me a great part of his glory. It has often been my delight to approach God and adore him as a sovereign God. No one can talk like that in the natural because this teaching goes right against what we all are by nature. This is the me generation. This is the what's in it for me era when the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel is what people want to hear. And so it is my view that the biblical teaching of the sovereignty of God will help correct this perspective. The fourth reason I give for dealing with this is the subject enables us to get better acquainted with the God of the Bible. You say, why use that phrase, God of the Bible? Because the God of the Bible is the only true God. And if you want to get to the heart of God, the shortest route to grasp the glory of God, I believe, is by way of the sovereignty of God. We could just deal with Exodus 33, but um, I've already chosen for lesson number one, starting in January, the glory of God. We'll have a whole evening on the glory of God. But now let's talk about what we mean by sovereignty. The first is his right, God's right. Now, two meanings are implied in God's right to do whatever he pleases. First, his privilege or prerogative. The aristocracy are said to be, quote, born to privilege. Now, whether these are just rights uh, to them is another matter. Indeed, we look at the way things are seen today, so much seems unfair and quite wrong. But when it comes to God, he was not born. He always was, is, and shall ever be. Well, the question is, what are the privileges of being God? Does he have a right to do this or that because he is God? That's the question. Well, we're saying yes. And you see, any conversion to God 
will be a conversion to the true God. So if you're converted to the true God, you just affirm him for being like he is. So the question I would put to you, it's a serious question, if you could change God and say, here's the way I want God to be. You, you see this teaching of, of the sovereignty of God in the Bible, and you say, well, I don't like a God like that. Well, then I would ask you, what kind of God would you like? If you could come up with the perfect God, what would he be like? But you see, what Jonathan Edwards was saying is that he had to have a change himself. And he came to see how sweet this is. And I would challenge you to this. That when you come to know God as he is, and just see what he's like, you will not want to change him. You will not want to change him. The highest uh, compliment you can give to God is to just love him the way he is. Now, we all like to hear that about ourselves. Uh, I love you just like you are. If people say that to me, I know they're lying. I don't expect them to say that to me. Uh, I love to hear it. Thank you, Andrew. You've said it three times a day. I, I think you're wonderful. No, we all like to hear that sort of thing, but it's not true. But to say to God, Lord, I love you just the way you are. And then the more you get to know him, you think, no, that, that is the way he is. Oh, this is wonderful. This is wonderful. And I pray that that will happen to you. All right? We're talking not only about his privilege, but his rightness. Indeed, righteousness in what he does. God makes the rules. What he does is right. Does this mean he can break the rules? Break his own rules? Does he teach us one thing but live another way himself? No. Within the right or privilege that is God's, are also his unchanging characteristics, among them being that he's holy. So God is holy. Everything he does is going to reflect, it will mirror his holiness. Another thing about God, he can't lie. He can't. I know some people who can't tell the truth. But God can't lie. He can't help it. It's impossible for God to lie. However, although God doesn't break the rules, neither does he have to explain himself along the way. You see, there are a lot of people who say, I've got a quarrel with God. God has got to explain something to me before I will affirm him or before I will worship him or turn my life over to him. Well, you can wait until you die. As if God owed you something. No, he doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't have to explain. Why? Because he's God. You see, he's answerable to nobody. Hebrews 6.13 says, When he could swear by no greater, or because he could swear by no greater, he just swore by himself. And so God looks for somebody equal or above him. He can't find it. All right, he's answerable to nobody. He is at peace with himself. It's wonderful to know that at 
His right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. The closer you get to God, and if you ever feel His presence, do you know, do you know the main thing you feel about the presence of God? Is that everything's under control? You know, when you're in a state of panic and you just project everybody's in panic, you just think, where is calm? Everything seems so chaotic. But if you ever get just a little taste of his presence, just like a raindrop, you suddenly think, poof, it's calm. Wow. This is the way God is. He's at peace with himself. All right. There's another reason. He is perfectly free. And the greatest freedom is having nothing to prove. You ever see a person who's got to explain himself all the time and, uh, or to prove something? Well, that's a sign of one's insecurity. You see, God is so secure within himself that it doesn't matter what the world says about him, he has nothing to prove. He can wait. He waited a thousand years. He's no hurry. A day with him is, is like a thousand years, and a thousand years a day. And so he's secure within himself, and uh, this study tonight could be on the sovereignty of Christ. Perhaps there's a place for that. Uh, but let me just uh, read something to you. Uh, I love this, where it says in Matthew 21, Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. Who gave you this authority? <laughs> well, Jesus made a deal with them. He said, I will ask you one thing. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Deal? Okay. Okay. John's baptism, says Jesus. Where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? Well, they discussed it from among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we're afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was the prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. <laughs> he made a deal. You tell me, I'll tell you. They wouldn't. He wouldn't. Or the way it was put when Herod, the king, you know, he was so excited to meet Jesus. He'd heard of Jesus. And the day came, Jesus was coming before him. He thought, oh, maybe I'll see him perform a miracle. And so Herod is looking right at him. And there's Jesus. And Jesus just looks. Herod keeps asking questions, and Jesus just looks. You know, I'd just love to have been there and watched that. He had nothing to prove. Perfect calm. Perfect calm. Having to explain ourselves all the time or to prove something is a sign of insecurity. And God has nothing to prove. That's his right. All right, let's look at another thing. His power. When the phrase sovereignty of God emerges, 
it's sort of hard to know which, if either, has the priority. Are you talking about God's will or his power? Well, probably, if you had to say which do you mean here, I would say his will. Ephesians 1.11, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So, Ephesians 1.11, if you ever wanted a declaration of God's sovereignty, there it is. And what surfaces is God's will. And so back to Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in heaven. He does whatsoever pleases him. There's your text for the sovereignty of God. So it arises out of the assumption. You've got to remember the Bible is God's in-house magazine. So you don't expect the Bible to, to propagate humanistic teaching. You're not going to find it. The Bible is God's word. And so the psalmist, you can say, well, that's one thing for the psalmist to say. Our God is in the heavens. He's done whatever pleases him. But you see, the psalmist is in love with this. He loves this God. He adores this God. He loves him. Because whatever God does is okay. Thus, the idea of his will or prerogative is what we think of most. But behind the assumption that God can exercise any right which he is pleased to do, lies the equal assumption that he can do anything. That is, he has the power to do what he chooses to do. For example, uh, take healing. There's a verse in Luke 5. The uh, presence of the Lord was there to heal. The power of the Lord was present to heal. Uh, but that was because God sovereignly did that. You see, if God chose to do it, out of this size uh, congregation tonight, I bet there are 40 people, I bet there are 40 people right here who have something wrong with you. And if you just knew you'd be healed, you'd walk out to the front if we had an appeal like that, if you knew you'd be healed. You see, if God chose to heal, you'd be healed. You know, when he said, let there be light, there was no argument back. There was light. So God not only has the will, but if he wants to do it, it'll be done. You need to know that about God. He is not in trouble. He's not bankrupt. He's not panicking. Everything is under control. Now there are those who sit on a throne who may exercise their will, but do they have the power to pull it off? It is said of Her Majesty the Queen, she does not rule, she reigns. But God not only reigns, but rules. He controls and carries out what he is pleased to do. Have you ever wondered uh, how it could be that Isaiah, who had the glimpse of the glory of the Lord, could say the whole earth is full of his glory? And maybe there have been times when you were just carried up into the presence of God. And when you are, you can just sense that he is in control of everything 
even a raindrop falling from heaven, even a leap in the autumn falling from a tree. So enamored can you be with the glory of God, but it's something that's got to be experienced. And, and Isaiah, when he saw the glory of the Lord, said the whole earth is full of his glory. You wouldn't think it to look around. You read the newspapers, you see what is available on magazine uh, uh, stands, and you think, boy, something's out of control. Don't worry. God knows what is going on, and he carries out what he's pleased to do. All right, we're talking about his power. The word power basically has two meanings. Uh, in fact, uh, if there's any Greek student here, in fact, there's more than two words in the Greek, but the two main words are dunamis and exousia. Dunamis means power. You get the word dynamite from there. And it means force or energy. It's what is used in, in Luke 24:49 when Jesus said to, to the disciples, tarry until you be endued with power. Or Acts 1.8, uh, you will re- receive power after the Holy Spirit is upon you. And it's, it's something every preacher longs for in order to speak with power. But then there's another word, exousia. In the authorized version, it is sometimes translated power. I think most modern versions translated authority. Exousia means having the right or privilege. Matthew 28 Verse 18, Jesus said, All authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. John chapter 1, verse 12, uh, To them who received him, to them gave he the authority to become sons of God. Um, All right. The sovereignty of God means both. Both power and authority. God has the power, the energy to do anything because he can make it happen. His power over creation, we're coming back to that, over nature. His power over the devil. Uh, I'm amazed. Uh, the new thing, it seems nowadays, is, is spiritual warfare. And people have their spiritual warfare conferences. And you sometimes think that the devil has more power than God. And I've run into people who, who seem to be scared to death of the devil. And, and they're giving the devil more profile. And especially around Halloween time. They find more Christians talk about the devil at Halloween. The devil loves it. He loves the profile. And people just scared to death. What's going to happen? Before the devil could tempt Job, he had to get permission from God. And you need to know any warfare you are experiencing when the devil tempts you or attacks you, It has already received God's okay. And he knows how much you can bear. All right. He has power over the devil. And yet equally, God alone has the right or privilege to do these things. He controls our destinies. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. According to Lamentations 3.22, it is by his mercy that we are not consumed. This is what Edwards was saying in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In a word, God can do anything and whatever he does is right. All right, let's come to one more.
thing before we take a little break. God's sovereignty with regard to creation, the realm of nature. God made the heavens and the earth according to his own will. Genesis 1. And according to Acts 17, he gave shape, substance, space, and time to everything that is. You need to know, all that is was not always there. Did you get that? All that is was not always there. Matter is not eternal. Hebrews 11, verse 3, shows without any doubt there was a time when there was nothing but God. Nothing but God. God was before there was even a speck of dust in remotest space. What is there was put there by God. Whether it's the earth's surface, land and sea, the earth's inhabitants, plants, animals, human beings. And so one of the great themes of the Bible is that he's creator. And I'm interested in Acts chapter 4 when the disciples prayed. And uh, the end of the prayer it says the place was shaken where they assembled together. The first thing they said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and everything. When is the last time you just pause to reflect on the fact that he's creator? He chose to create. He chose to have land, sea, light, space, time. You need to know another thing about the nations. God is sovereign over the nations. The reason that there are different languages is because in Genesis chapter 11, that's the way God ordered it to be done. And he had confusion of tongue. And God equally has the power to bestow the gift of language or interpretation of tongues because God is sovereign over language. He's sovereign over the peoples. He made nations determining their origins and their destinies. God has the power to topple a nation and to put the leader he chooses there. What happened with the fall of the Berlin Wall could have happened 20 years before had God so decreed. And one day, God will judge the nations. Common grace. This would be worth a whole evening. We've had a touch of it in previous sessions. Do you know what we mean by common grace? It's God's goodness to everybody. John Calvin used the phrase, special grace within nature. What he means by that is that it is not being saved. The fact that God is good to everybody doesn't mean that everybody is saved. Uh, so it is common grace uh, does not refer to conversion. It does not refer to regeneration or sanctification. But what it does refer to are things like your natural abilities. A person can have great natural ability and not be converted. Uh, my hero as I grew up was uh, Artur Rubinstein, the, the pianist. Uh, this week's Time magazine said Vladimir Horowitz was the greatest pianist 
that ever lived that made me angry because I thought Arthur Rubenstein was. Two great pianists, both of them unconverted men, but they had gifts that you could only say came from God. And when you think of a violinist like Yehudi Menuhin, and I can just put on a, a, a taper, listen to Yehudi Menuhin, and it just does more good for me. And I think, oh, thank you, Lord. Yehudi Menuhin must be saved. I doubt it. I, I've met him. He may be saved. I kind of doubt it. But there's no doubt that uh, God has been good to that man and good to all of us by giving us such a gift. I mean, going to a concert, to Royal Albert Hall, and, and the sound of music, you think, thank God for it. Thank God for dentists. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, maybe I don't mean what I say. Well, of course you know what I mean. Doctors. Uh, thank God for any gift that is useful. Your talent, your intelligence, your job, your income, and even the existence of law is by common grace. Uh, this is what Romans 13 tells us. Where would we be without the fear of punishment? And God establishes governments for our sakes, which may have no connection whatever with the church. The weather. God lets the rain fall on the just and the unjust. The sun shines on the just and the unjust. He controls nature from rain to earthquakes. He allows things that are not good in our eyes, but why he does it belongs to the mystery of his sovereignty. What I want to do tonight is to elevate your view of God, that you have such a high view of God. And if I built your view of God so it was so high, that I would even want it to be higher than that. He's infinite. The last point before we take a break. Our individual creation and existence. You see, God chose to give each of us birth. Every good gift, every perfect gift has come from above, from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So that you're not an accident. You say, well, I am. My parents said I was an accident. They said that... We didn't want to have any more children, and you came along. Well, your parents may not have wanted you, but God did. God did. He's sovereign. And so you can rightly conclude that God even chose your parents. You may say, well, that does make me think very highly of God. <laughs> well, most of us have some quarrel with our parents, but you that feel that way, if you're a parent... Uh, maybe one day your son or daughter think that about you. None of us is perfect. But God shows our parents. And even if, humanly speaking, you got a bad break and you have a lousy father or a lousy mother, you can let that be the reason for your bitterness for the next 25 years or you can let it work for you. And let it become your genius and how you can overcome. God, therefore, even shows the time and place of your birth. Sovereignty of God. We'll come back to the next part in just a moment. Let's take a breather.
We have looked at God's right, His privilege, His power, His sovereignty over creation. Let's move on. God's sovereignty with regard to redemption. The word redemption and salvation may, generally speaking, be used interchangeably. They each have their meanings. For example, redemption means that God bought us back by the blood of his Son. Salvation means God spared us of wrath to come by the blood of his Son. But either word comes to the same thing and can often be used or almost always be used interchangeably. So we're talking now about God and salvation and his sovereignty with regard to salvation. Now, he chose to save us before Adam and Eve sinned. And yet, he made that choice knowing that they would sin. Now, if you're prepared to ask me, why did God allow Adam and Eve to sin? There's only one answer. We don't know. If we knew that, we'd know it all. No mind, the greatest genius, can't answer it. He allowed it. He willed it to that extent. Why? You tell me. Why did God create man knowing he would suffer? Who knows? And so, if we knew the answer to questions like that, we wouldn't need faith. Faith, to be faith, is saying, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Faith, to be faith, is affirming God and letting God be God, even though you don't understand everything. But this much is apparent from Scripture. That God chose us, even before Adam and Eve sinned, in the light of the fact that they would, would sin. And so that the fall of man, man's sin in the Garden of Eden, it's all in Genesis chapter 3. We'll have an evening one of these days just on this. But the fall did not take God by surprise. Jesus is the Lamb chosen before the creation of the world. And so God knew what he was doing. He therefore did not panic when Adam and Eve sinned, but began the process of redemption in the Garden of Eden itself. Did you ever wonder why in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them? That was the initiation of the sacrificial system, the shedding of blood, so that even the process of buying us back began in the Garden of Eden. God chose to have a people. Why? You tell me. What we know is, according to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, 
The choice was made before the world began. And this is something that is just too much to grasp. But once it grips you, all you can do is worship. When I realized that God chose me, R.T. Kendall, thousands of years ago, but before then, before there was ever a star, before there was ever a planet, before God said, let there be light. And the same is true with you. You may not have been wanted by your parent. And you may have been rejected at home. And you may not have been born to privilege. And you may not have been the object of a lot of common grace. Perhaps you're not a genius. You're not a physicist. Your name will never be exalted in Westminster Abbey a hundred years after you die. But God chose you. Far better to spend eternity in heaven than to have a little plaque on the wall, Westminster Abbey. All my friends in America think that I am the minister of Westminster Abbey. Louise went to a wedding in Sterling, Illinois, and the paper said in attendance was Louise Kendall. Why is that coming down? If somebody got nothing better to do, play with the screen. It said Louise Kendall, uh, wife of Dr. R.T. Kendall, pastor Westminster Abbey, London, England. They get mail. They get mail over there. What'd you say? That made you feel good, Charlie. <laughs> well, it could, except that I have American friends that go to Westminster Abbey looking for me. <laughs> and the dean of the cathedral or somebody over there says, Well, I know who you want. It's not here. It's down the street. <laughs> I do not know what made me get off on that. But you may not have profile here below. But when I just think, God wanted me. He wanted me. He didn't have to want me, but He did. I don't understand it. And the people God chose were given to His Son. John chapter 6, verse 37. Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And these people are predestined to be saved. Romans 8.30 Whom he predestined, he called. Whom he called, he justified. Whom he justified, he glorified. You ask, why were some chosen? You tell me. We only know one thing, and that is, the choice was not based upon works. And if you knew me real well, you'd know that's obvious. If I knew you pretty well, I'd say, well, obviously God didn't choose you on the basis of works. Why? Don't know. Just says, 
according to his own purpose and grace. And then the next thing we know is that those that God chose will eventually believe. Acts 13, 48. As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Some wish that had read as many as believed were ordained to eternal life. Had it said that, that would have been a true statement because everyone who believes is ordained to eternal life. But Luke didn't say it that way. It says, as many as were appointed, is the NIV translation, appointed to eternal life, believed. All right. This next statement that I'm making, I'm just doing it to preempt your question. I don't mind if you want to ask it again. But if you ask why God chose some, but not all, the nearest you come to an answer is in the words of Jesus. I just want to read this to you. Because this is what Jesus said in Matthew 11, verse 27. No, verse 25. He says, At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned. You see, what often is the case? That the most brilliant people are not saved. Now, we may have one or two geniuses here tonight. How many geniuses are here tonight? (laughs) You're pointing, he's pointing to his wife. (laughs) Albert Einstein is supposed to have had an IQ of 212. The average IQ is 100. 90 to 110 is average. If you're 110, you're... You're fairly bright. If you're 120, you're very bright. 130, genius. That's, I think, most IQ tests. Maybe some of them make it 140. Einstein, not 160, which, whew, 212. As far as we know, wasn't a converted man. And all these musicians I've talked about tonight, they're geniuses. And we thank God for dentists, doctors, and those who can perform brain surgery or, or take a gallbladder out. And when you go to a doctor and you're going to have brain surgery, you don't say, oh, look, I only want a Christian. You don't care whether he's saved or not. You just want the best brain surgeon. And you thank God if he's got a lot of ability. All right, now listen to Jesus. This is Matthew eleven twenty-five. I praise you. Now, maybe you wouldn't do that. You might say, how dare you? This is our reaction. How dare you hide these things from the wise and the prudent? No, Jesus said, I praise you because you've hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. Some things remain a mystery, like an earthquake. Here is my advice 
to anybody at this moment you're having difficulty with this teaching. And listen to me. I sympathize. If you're just thinking, this is awful. You're looking at your watch, think how much longer am I going to have to sit in this place and, and hear all this stuff. I understand. I understand. I really do. I don't know why there's a hell. I don't understand that. Why didn't God just destroy hell? If you say, why didn't he save it? Uh, everybody? I want to know, why, does, why is there a hell? I don't know. But there's so much that we don't understand. But here's the verse. This is the verse that I would commend to you. It's Genesis 18.25. Maybe this is the verse that you should take home with you. And even though you have difficulty with this teaching, maybe totally new to you, you say, I've never heard anything like it. I, oh, whew. Adopt Abraham's answer. When he saw Sodom and Gomorrah about to go up in flames, when, as far as we know, they didn't even get a warning. He just said, will not the judge of all the earth do right? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And I just urge you, on bended knee, you're having difficulty with this teaching, and just say, well, maybe it's really true. I don't understand it. If God says it, it's okay. And just let him be God. In the meantime, worship him. Now, uh, the last, uh, uh, almost the penultimate point I make tonight is God's sovereignty with regard to his dealings with us. The explanation for our status in life, our calling, profile, or position. Whether you are a teacher or a nurse or a secretary, a lorry driver, or a pastor of a church. Whether you are bright, or you're thick, or you can do maths, but you can't do uh, history, or you can do history, but you can't do maths, or maybe you can do both, or maybe you can do neither, lies solely and wholly within the mystery of God's sovereignty. By the way, when I run into anybody that can do mathematics, I admire them. I can tell you now, my grade when I took algebra, when I was a senior in high school, was F. I went up to the teacher and I started to whimper a little bit, and she felt sorry for me. She struck it out, put D minus. <laughs> Anybody here good at algebra? I'm not. I wish I were, and I can think of a lot of things I wish. I wish I had this or that. And I've got to live within the limits of, of, of my gift. And, and uh, uh, I had one deacon back in Fort Lauderdale said, take R.T.'s Bible from him and he can't do anything. <laughs> but I live, I live within my gift. <laughs> but whatever your gift is, Wherever God has put you, maybe you can say with David. And this is, this is what is meant by the sovereignty of God. Even if you never heard the phrase, uh, applied it to this particular verse. Psalm 16, verse 6. 
The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. Can you say God's been good to you? Can you? David was highly favored. Mary, the Lord has blessed you. You are highly favored among women. What did Mary do to deserve that? She was a teenage girl who suddenly was just visited by Gabriel, the archangel. We're told that David was a man after God's own heart. He was Israel's greatest king. And perhaps with many of you, you humbly and gratefully acknowledge, as did David in Psalm 13, verse 6, I will sing to the Lord, for he has been good to me. He's been good to me. John Calvin, on his deathbed, uttered these words, Lord, thou crushest me. He was in such pain. But, said Calvin, that it is thy hand, it is enough. God lets it happen. It's okay. It may be God's goodness, not only at the level of saving mercy, but some of you have been blessed greatly with common grace. And you know you have. God's been good to you, given you a lot of ability. And it may be God's role for you in his kingdom. And, and uh, you've got to live there within the place where God has put you. you Maybe you're uh, ambitious for this position in your church, or you're wanting to be the pastor of this church. Well, let God decide that. Let God decide that. You want to be a fool. You try to get a job God doesn't want you to have. Just come to terms with his sovereignty. Or here's another thing. How God has spared you of hurt or embarrassment. How many of you can say, He has not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. A friend of mine said that he was in the greatest trial of his life. And a man came to him at the door one Sunday morning with these words. He said, God has given me a message for you. And he says, what is it? Two things. One, this too will pass. And two, the truth is worse than what they know. Maybe that's true with you. Maybe you need to know whatever you're going through. This too will pass. And the truth is worse than what they know. God, in his sovereignty, has spared you. Or maybe you're like Mephibosheth. Here we go. Mephibosheth. You have to be a charismatic to pronounce that word, don't you? <laughs> Sounds like unknown tongues to me. Oh, you can do it, huh? He was crippled, lame from birth. Some have a handicap from birth. Why? There are people here tonight, you've got something that's wrong with you. You've had it since you were born. Others develop a problem, either through illness or, or through an accident. Some Christians seem destined to continual suffering. I've got a friend who said, I've never known much suffering. Others 
can never know when they didn't have suffering, whether it's financial or emotional or physical or social suffering. Why? It lies within the mystery of God's sovereignty and certainly for his glory. John 11:4. This is for the glory of God. When Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick. So the explanation of God's strategy for his kingdom lies within the sphere of God's sovereignty. Your calling, anointing. Some have greater gifts. Some of you have gifts that others don't have. Some of you in your church, you're the eye, others the head, some the intestines. And what would the body be without intestines? But you can't see the intestines. You can see the eye, you can see the head. And there are people in the, your church, they're the head, they're the eye, they have profile. And wh- what are you? You say, well, I'm just the guts of the place. But what would they do without you? But that's the way God wanted it. Our faithfulness and hard work, as opposed to those who are equally rewarded without any effort. Here, look at this. Matthew 20. There were those who worked all day long. And they agreed for a certain salary. And then some came in at the last minute, an hour before they quit. And then they all go up to get their pay. And those who came in at the last minute get paid the same as those who worked all day long. That didn't seem fair. But Jesus said, who are you to argue? Now, you know that parable from the Bible, and you've you wondered why is it there. It lies within the mystery of God's sovereignty. And so some work for years to get where others are in a day. God may pass over the gifted person at the last minute. It's the explanation for God's chastening. God may chasten one for a sin or a fault and another gets away with it. And he may wait for years to discover another person's error. You you look at a person, you say, why doesn't God deal with them? I couldn't do that. Well, maybe God will do it in five years. Maybe he will. Others are dealt with immediately. You see, God may use chastening or suffering to refine your character. And another may get the same refinement, but he doesn't have to go through chastening. God can just fill him with the Spirit. But I, you know, isn't it amazing? Two people can be made to be more like Jesus. One, because he's filled with the Spirit just like that. Another just goes through all kinds of suffering to get to the same place. Doesn't seem fair, but it belongs to God's secret will. It's the explanation for any success. God may use a Billy Graham. This upsets a lot of hyper-Calvinists. And God may withhold success or vindication from those who may seem so worthy. Some get a promotion, others do not. Some get married. Others do not. And can you come to the place that you can leave it with the Lord? Now I close by pointing out, as I said earlier, we could have had a, another evening on the sovereignty of Jesus. Tonight has been sovereignty of God with particular reference to God the Father. But a most thrilling study. And someday we'll have this on the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. Uh, All that we've said about the will and power of God can be ascribed to the Son. You can see it at the level of creation, at the level of redemption, 
And I love it when Jesus told Peter how he was going to die. And then Peter, the whole time he was hearing that, kept thinking, well, what about John here? Come on, what about John here? And Jesus' words were, what if I will? He could have said, what if the Father wills? He says, what if I will? So, Jesus is sovereign. What if, if he tarries? I will that he tarries, if, if he lives until I come again. Well, I don't know what you have made of this tonight. I gave you one verse. Genesis 18:25 Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Here's one more. Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And can you affirm the above, as Jesus did, when he said, I praise you, Lord, that you've hid these things from the wise and learned, revealed them to babes. I praise you. Why? It seemed good in your sight. It seemed good in your sight. Go easy on me now. Questions. Got just about 10 minutes. We'll quit at 8.30. Here's one. Come on, let's fill this aisle. Now, wait a minute. Everybody close your notebook all at once. Here we go. We're going to count down. Five, four, three, two, one. Okay, now stop it till we're finished. First, can you draw a distinction between the sovereignty of God, as you've taught it this evening, and the fatalism of the Muslim who says Allah wills it? Very good question. You see, the difference is that the Father has left a mystery uh, for us. And uh, uh, we don't claim to understand everything. We would say that he permits it, whereas uh, the Muslims say he wills it. And there's a big difference. Uh, God permits evil, but he doesn't will it. And that's the crucial difference. Thank you for that question. Okay, let's... Ah, oh, here's my sweet brother. You still speaking to me? Come on, be gentle with me. I hope you're going to agree with me this evening. <laughs> uh, would you uh, agree that earthquakes, volcanoes, floods result from the corruption of nature as brought about in the fall in the same way as human nature was brought about in the fall? We are in total agreement. And thank you for that. I'm being very serious. Beautiful comment. You're absolutely right. It came as a result of the fall. Well done. Thank, thank you, you, brother. Isn't that great? Uh, Dr. Kendall, could you please fit in um, with what you've said, the statement about God's will in the Bible, where it's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. All right. Uh, this does come up next week, but in case you're not here, unless someone thinks I'm trying to avoid you, uh, there are two ways to look at that verse. One is, the way I tend to look at it, is that the heart of God 
is the salvation of all men. Rolf Barnard, uh, the Calvinist preacher from North Carolina, used to put it this way. It's not a logical statement, but he used to say, God wants everybody to be saved. He's determined to save some. Now, I don't know whether you can live with that. Now, that is the way I would interpret 2 Peter 3.9. But there's another way. And exegetically, this is very sound. It says, he is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, meaning any of us. So it, uh, many exegetes point out that the ones that he's not willing to perish is, are, are the ones who are already saved. That it's a verse that refers more to the security of the believer than it does. Uh, to the sovereignty of God. I tend to take the first view, but you could support the second. Thank you. Okay, all of them on this side. Come ahead, brother. Uh, good evening, Dr. Kenneth. Good evening. Um, I'm listening rather critical to your um, all lecture right. tonight. All right, I want you to. So regarding Moore's theosophy and theology, but uh, um, why I, I'm up here is I couldn't see any reference to... Uh, in time, in Hebrews, the, I mean in Acts 13:48, uh, and uh, sort of the point you are making on that seemed to be um, unsound. You, uh, what I said was that every all of God's chosen will eventually come to faith in Christ, and I said in time, uh, because Jesus said, "All that the Father gives me will come." Yeah, but uh, 1348 says, you know, those who were chosen were saved then, you know. And Sorry? Uh, well, uh, you know, it says that uh, they were selected and right. whatever, you know. Yeah, the good thing happened with that. to them. Uh, What is it that you're disagreeing with? Well, it's sort of, um, <coughs> it's sort of perhaps uh, this in time business, I mean. Well, let me explain. Hmm. A person who is chosen doesn't necessarily believe the first time he hears the gospel. Uh, all of us here tonight, I dare say, I, I'm assuming, I may be wrong, but I'm assuming everybody here tonight is, is saved. That means everybody here tonight are the chosen. But many of you heard the gospel and rejected it, and eventually it came to the Lord, so that in time, that's what I meant. All right. Fun. Well, that was easy. <laughs> okay, next, come ahead. Got time for somebody over on this side if you want. Or may not, this guy can be trouble. Uh, Dr. Kendall, would you make the normal distinction between predestination unto life and foreordination unto damnation? Yeah, I would. And uh, would you explain it? That is, that is taking a, a, a hardened logical view that may be a logical conclusion, but still going beyond Scripture. So I wouldn't want to say that. What my view of predestination and election is this, that God chose from the fallen race, and it wasn't that he chose some to be saved and chose some to be damned. All are damned, and he chose some to be saved, and gave some what they don't deserve, and he's giving some what they do deserve. Uh, sorry, you've just 
said that you actually agree with the distinction normally made that predestination is something a positive act of God overruling whereas foreordination is simply his uh, more or less inactive carrying out his judicial function well, now look. and there is a distinction made uh, in the Westminster Confession between those two words one little problem here the theme of our school of theology is theology put simply and friend that ain't simple so I, I, I don't want to go into it that heavily I, I, I went with you a long way and, yeah. and we may agree in the end but I don't want to go over the heads of, no, of lot I just people. wondered whether you actually recognize that there was a distinction it's, it's, made it's, between the use of those two words. Yeah, I can see that. I, I understand that. I know where you're coming from. Okay, thank you. Okay. All right. We'll take the next man because he was here first and we'll take you. Um, <clears throat> verse from Hebrews, uh, chapter 6, verse 18. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. Hebrews 6.18 It's referring to the impossibility for God to lie in these particular two unchangeable things. This doesn't seem to be uh, a verse which one could uh, engage uh, to help one with the thought about whether it's impossible for God to lie under all circumstances. Well, we would just have to disagree there. Uh, there's one other place in Titus where it says God cannot lie. Titus oh, I wasn't uh, asserting that. I was just speaking about this uh, particular verse. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Last question, and then we'll have to call it an evening. Is it not true that God is said in the Bible to have given us a free will to choose him or not to choose him? Sweet friend, that is... You, you were foreordained to be the last person to say that because you are setting me up for next week. That... I'm being serious. I'm, I'm partly facetious when I said you are foreordained to say that. What I mean is... You couldn't have said it at a better time. It's the last question, and it introduces the subject next week. And if you will just let me wait till next week, you will see that the other side of the coin will be dealt with just as thoroughly and carefully without denying anything that we've taught tonight. But there's another side of the coin, and that's next week. Be here. Do you accept what I've said? You understand? I'm not putting you off. I'm just saying that's the whole evening. You still love me? And now may grace, peace, joy, flowing from the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.